Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. I thought for sure I was going to lose my job. I definitely thought I cannot drive. Christmas rolls around, I'm, I'm really not feeling good. So I remember going to my mom and dad's house for Christmas, and I don't think I ever got out of the car. And then we get to the end, Trader's leading, and I'm like, man, I don't know if I can catch him or not. Not if I catch him. He goes in the one, what was up? I'm like, oh boy, we got him. We get back to the motorhome. My dad's in there, and he goes, Cowboys won too. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, <laughs> this morning, 
I was in Stewart, Virginia with Morgan Shepard on his annual Christmas trip. Every year, I guess my first year on that trip was 1994. Yeah. So that's been 25 years. And I've made every one since then except for three, I think. So that is a big part of Christmas for me. I can imagine so. And to see the reaction of the clients at the park workshop, the very, very special clientele that they have up there, to see them with Morgan, you would think that he was Jimmy Johnson. You would think that he was Tony Stewart, whoever. Yeah. He comes and he pays attention to them, and they love him for that. I understand if his trips had not continued, those organizations may not have continued. Well, the park workshop, Morgan presented them with a $15,000 check today. Really? All total. They were trying to figure out how much he had donated to them over the years. He actually donated a house. Really? Yeah, that they use for some of their occupational therapy sessions and all that kind of thing. All total, I think that the figure that they come up with was somewhere north of $250,000. And this year, he donated $15,000. And we know the situation that Morgan is in on the racetrack currently when he struggles to buy tires. Sure. So you think about $15,000 and just how many sets of tires that that he could buy on that. So. His heart is truly in the right place, but you kind of alluded to a situation. Always, every year, they pick me up at a service center near where I live, a gas station, and pick me up this morning, bright and early, 7.30, and then drop me off at the same place. Now, usually, I just go home from there, so I don't see Morgan once he pulls out of the parking lot. Well, this year, because we had to record the podcast, I wound up following him back onto I-77 southbound towards Charlotte. Uh-huh. And as he was getting up to speed off the entrance ramp, I got the big idea I was going to pass him. Oh. And I did pass him. Oh. Okay? And I was feeling so good about myself. I actually sent Cindy Shepard, his wife, a message on Facebook. Yeah, I was texting while driving. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but I sent her a message, and I said, I just passed Morgan Shepard. <laughs> Yeah, how long before you saw the tail end of his car? (laughs) A car? No, sir. He passed me like I was towing a boat anchor (laughs) driving his motor coach. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I don't believe I'm going to be racing Morgan Shepard anytime soon on the racetrack or certainly on the interstate. (laughs) Well, Rick, I've learned over the years that when it comes to drivers on the highway and in the air, there are several rules to follow. Number one. Do not pass a driver on the interstate. Number two, don't get in the same car with a driver (laughs) on the interstate. And number three, and this is most important, never, never get on an airplane piloted by a driver. You'll be upside down in two minutes. Now, see, I learned my lesson driving with Morgan. Driving through the hills of Virginia and the twisting roads, and you get a little queasy, you know, (laughs) green around the gills. So I learned not to make any comments. About Absolutely. that, because if you made comments, oh, it was it was on from there. So it's just a really good time. Well, Rick, you and a uh, truly good you time. and Morgan are both men of faith, and uh, the deeds that you do every year for the people who need it are acts of faith, and you're to be congratulated. 
Well, Steve, I truly do appreciate that. But this year, it's all about Morgan. This year and every year, it's all about Morgan and his heart for those folks up there. So on to the episode this week. Our first segment, we are going to talk to Bobby Labonte again, the second of what will be three installments with him. This time out, he talks about the 1992 Bush Series season that started with him helping to pull Joe Nemechek from his burning car at Daytona. And then, incredibly, he wound up losing the championship to Joe that year by three points. Three points. Three. You talk about Ernie. Three. I had almost forgotten that. So that was pretty big. And then he talks about going Winston Cup racing with Bill Davis Racing. He talks about kind of struggling to get that car up to speed. And then he talks about making the move to Joe Gibbs Racing for the 1995 season. So that was a pretty revealing conversation. And then also, finally, I didn't know this, but Bobby had dealt with a pretty substantial illness before he actually made the jump to Joe Gibbs the offseason yeah. before the 1995. I didn't know that either. And then, Steve, in our second segment, we are going to take some more listener questions okay bring and it you know that's always a wild card <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you never know exactly what you're going to get yeah but life this... is like a box of chocolates <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to tackle some of those questions and finally on patreon if you could please consider supporting us on patreon five dollars a month you will get a copy of the commemorative issue of grand national scene that we did you will also get a classic issue of Winston Cup scene. And if you will do $10 a month, you will get both of those newspapers and a signed Steve Wade rookie card. How about that? Oh, <laughs> sign up. So you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would rather do just a one-time show of support, anything you could do $5, $10, $100. We would appreciate anything you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Nineteen ninety two, you go to Daytona and you wind up helping Todd Bodine pull Joe Nemechek out of his burning race car. <laughs> yeah. Uh that was pretty big. Yeah. That was pretty big. What do you remember about that? Well, I remember, you know, it was when I guess that's where I had the emotion part is when you're in a car and you you know that happens. And I remember the wreck happening, but I remember we all kind of crashed. We all kind of landed down in the back straightaway, I guess, in the in the grass. And you know, I get out and Todd's out, and we went over to Joe. And I mean, that freaking thing is yeah. is is in is, blaze. Yeah, it's it is hot. And I don't know that I remember it because you don't think about it. You just right. go do it. You just react. It's yeah. And so we get him out. <laughs> and I have a funny story, and I have not so funny story, but the. <laughs> The, we get him out. I mean, he was like, it was, he was, you know, out of breath, breathing fumes, uh, inhaling smoke. And so get him out. And it's like, I swear to you, we put him on the door top and you can almost hear his butt sizzling because it's so hot. So we get him on the ground and we uh. lay him down on the ground. And I remember flipping his visor open and I'm, you know, like, are you okay? And, uh, and so... And then, you know, then it's like, okay, you're okay. Now, how can I go fix my car, right? So I kind of had a moment of like, okay. Gotta go. Here we go. We gotta go. So, uh, but anyway, so it was, um, 
um, I, I think back on that. I mean, it's like, man, I can't believe that that happened, right? And I was so glad that we were there. And I mean, I hate that we were active course because then you want to work on your car to get back out there. And, you know, you're just going through the emotions of it. But now the funny part is, of course, he wins the championship that year by three points, right? Three. And it's like, Three. It's like, I, I laughed about it later. I'm like, dude, we should have left in there for just a little bit longer. You know, <laughs> of course, that would not be what you'd want to do. You can say that later, but it's like, oh, man. Maybe so, Charles uh, him just a little bit Yeah, more. just like, oh. So we, we talked about him having griddle marks on his butt from the seat and all that stuff. But, I mean, it, you know, I mean, wow, what, what, a, what a turn of events that could have been if it had been. 15 yeah. seconds later or, yeah. you know, what, yeah. you know, yeah. you don't know. But, again, it's more reaction. You don't – I have no idea what we did. I have no idea what sparked anything to, to go do what we did other than the fact that just the pure, you know, I mean, you just do it. You just well, I don't do see how you can reaction. say that and not react. And right. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have yeah. to react, you know. That year, 1992, was obviously a huge year for championship battles. You had the Elliott Kowicki thing in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And then you and Todd and Joe had been in the accident at Daytona. And ironically enough, the championship comes down to the three of you. And Todd kind of fades a little bit late, but you go into the finale at Hickory Trail and Joe by 33 points. You have an awesome car. That thing's a rocket ship. Jimmy Spencer is doing all he can to run over Joe every time they get near each other. But you wind up three points short. Yeah. Was that harder to lose by three points than it would have been if you'd lost by 300? Oh, I think so. If you look I mean, at the photo after the race of the victory, we won the race. There's yeah. nobody smiling. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're all yeah. pissed off. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it's like, I mean, and Joe's car is beat all to crap. Yeah. And Spencer's just being Spencer, you know, so it's like, <laughs> I mean, we, you said it, I didn't. We had him lap down. We had Limachek lap down once or twice. And next thing you know, it's like caution enough for him to not get the lap, not to get, almost had him lap down. So that was hard. It was hard to swallow losing by three. I mean, I think I would have rather lost by 300. You're right, just because, you know, you'd have been out of it before that. But we, we did have such a good car, and we were, like, so fast. And it's like, man, you you know, when you're, you know, when you're on the uh, offense trying to beat him and you see that he's actually beatable, and then whenever things happen, you know, at that moment, at that time, that, like, we really had him beat. We really had him beat. We should have won. We had him, you know, we should have won the championship. We, and then when it comes down to it and you lose by three, I mean, it's definitely, it's obviously, it's a it's a letdown. It's a, okay, won the race, but it's a letdown because we lost the championship. That same year, Bill Davis goes through kind of a messy split with Jeff Gordon. At what point were you approached about moving over to Bill's deal and going Winston Cup racing? Probably the moment that Jeff left, uh, I would say pretty quickly after that. Um, you know, Bill and I had become Well, friends. he didn't leave until the end of the season. Yeah. So, did, I mean. It wasn't until the end of the season. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't until the end of the season because, what I mean, Jeff was going to drive his car, you know, when, when he was going to go cup racing, right? Um, and I was, you know, recollect a little bit, but, I mean, I think that I was just going to keep on going. You know, there was um, – I say talk. There wasn't talk about it because I think that was pretty well known that he was going to do that. But Bill and I had made friends through through the years of, you know, once he moved to Thomasville and got his race team going and, you know, I'd help with, you know, here's the the North State telephone people to get your phone hooked up. Here's the, um, yeah. you know, your utility people that, that I know. Here's the banker that I use and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm, 
you know, I'm pretty sure he was pretty geared up with Jeff until Jeff said, hey, I'm not going to do this, which, I mean, the end of the year wasn't like December back then. It was, right. you know, probably a little bit, little bit earlier. And uh, well, I mean, that was probably first, uh, I don't know if it was announced, but it became pretty well known that he was going to make a move Yeah, probably in May or so. Yeah, to, to the Cup Series. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, when did he announce that he was leaving, though, that Rick hired him? I think, yeah, I think it was probably in probably May. Right. It was after Atlanta because that's where Rick Hendrick, quote, unquote, discovered him. Yeah. And then it was pretty soon after that. I want to say it was in May yeah. when, when that was announced. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying to think of when when that was. Anyway, we, you know, when we got together, I mean, that's – so it had to be before the last race. But yeah. we were yeah. we were putting it all together, and then when Jeff decided to leave and – um, you know, I had a couple of the offers and, you know, they weren't, did you want nothing that I needed to do yeah. according to my agent, which was Terry. And, uh, <laughs> so when that opportunity came about, when Jeff did leave, you know, then I was like, all right, so my Bush Grand national team was set up and David Green was out of a ride. So yeah. I said, all right, you're, you drive my car. I'll go drive Bill's car. You know, I mean, yeah, I'll move up to this level and you move over here and to, to, uh, Trinity and find your house and I'll help you find it. And next thing you know, he's racing for me and I'm racing for, for Bill. Now was Terry officially your agent or was that more just a, as an unofficial agent. Okay. All right. Okay. I got you. I've been his agent too a couple of times. So. <laughs> <laughs> 1993, your rookie year with Bill, you got a poll, a top five and maybe a handful of top tens. Were you satisfied with that? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, that was hard to, you think about, I remember the first of December, like December one, there's like no race cars in the shop. I mean, it was like chassis wow. sitting there, but there's like nothing done. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, I mean, I, I remember going over there for, you know, 28 of the 31 days of December, just like punching <laughs> yeah. a clock, you know, yeah. working all day, um, you know, putting duct work in, uh, doing anything you can do to, you know, Bill cars as Bill was trying to build his team up at the same time of you got your own engine shop, you got your, you're starting your own car, you're, you're starting everything. And, um, so, you know, it seemed like that was a, um, uh, I mean, it, that, that was probably a hard road to hoe when you think about that, like starting that program up like that, that late, even though that was back then and it was different. So saying all that, I mean, um, you know, going to Daytona for the first time for the 500, we're not, we're not guaranteed in, right? Mm -hmm. I talk about pressure packed. I mean, we're not guaranteed. So we got to make it in. And I think we made it in. We're like 13, 12, 13, 14, whatever the cutoff was, we were one spot ahead of the cutoff. Terry helped me, you know, throughout the, the 125s. So we made it in the race. And I think that was a year I remember, I mean, it, it, this, this is what you just did. I mean, I can't think that was a year that we were, um, we had to go to Sears and buy some die grinders and we were cutting the tubes out of the intake and re-welding it up. And I was actually in Roush's trailer welding up intake because I knew how to wire weld. I knew wow. the hell of arc, you know? So uh, it's like, I mean, you know, it's just yeah. when you do things, you yeah. know, and we were just, yeah. you know, how do you get speed? How do you do this? How do you do that? You know, I mean, you just kind of, you start going Bill had the nicest stuff, nicest guy. I mean, he's the nicest uh, employer. I mean, he had some good people, he and Gail. I mean, but it seemed like, you know, it's like we had BSR, uh, Billy Hess cars, and, you know, I don't think they had, that, that was their, Grand National cars were that, but this is Cup cars. And anyway, it was like, I remember going to Charlotte. It's kind of, this is where it turned. I thought for sure I was going to lose my job 
prior or at Charlotte for the Coke 600. I mean, I say lose my job. I was that first year. I was definitely, I felt like I was definitely on the, the, (laughs) you know, cannot drive. I definitely thought I cannot drive because you had Tim Brewer there. You had all this going on. It was like, okay. And we weren't running that good. You know, things were not going right. We were, you know, you can look back now. It's like, well, you're a new team. Things, you know, things, you know, going on. I'll never forget. We go to the all-star race or in the open. Now, is this the first year? Yep. In 93, this is the open race. So we take a car and we go down there. And I think I qualified like, you know, 28th. 26 something for like the that. open yeah i'm like just do the math we're not going to make the next weekend's race we're not going to make the coke 600 race yeah, yeah. so uh, we had a um we had a um we ended up with like a 2800 pound right front spring 1200 left rear 350 400 in the rear and that thing i mean I, the first lap on the track about wrecked so we ended up having to get that just to keep the car off the ground so we run that race and of course, my head's blowing up with just like all these like, what are you going to do, right? I got to go back drive my car. You know, my where's my Bush Grand National car? I'm not dead drinking. What am I <laughs> yeah, going to do? Yeah. So all this stuff going through. So I ended up, I went across the street from Bill's shop to Hagen's, and Pete Wright let me in. We can say this now, but I went over there. So I took straight edge, took tape measures, angle finders, and I measured a uh, Laughlin car. So Pete helped me put a straight edge on the frame rail, measured up where the pivot points were, we go back to the shop, we drill holes, put washers in, weld them up. So go back to your shop, Bill Dave. Bill Dave's shop. Yeah. Do that. Got two spindles that are just stock, Laughlin spindles, put on the car. We go back down there for the 600, qualified sixth. I think it was six. Wow. Six or eight, something, you know, somewhere yeah. in the top 10. And it was, we went with 1,000 pounds less, less right front spring than we did the first weekend. Still had to probably engineate the bar in it, but had less. That was the only difference that we really made was we went over there and copied that, you know, um, pivot points on that car and got two spindles for it. So that kind of, I mean, and obviously qualifying that good. And I'm Andy Petrie talking about it. He's like, I remember that race. I remember you all of a sudden you're like, what in the world happened to you? I'm like, yeah, me too. So yeah. at the mile mark 500, if it would have been a 500 mile race, is Dale Jarrett and I running first, second, yeah. second, third, something like that. And we ended up finishing that sixth place or something like that for the uh, at the end of it because we weren't quite fast enough and I'm not enough, not experienced enough. So, but anyway, that was talk about a turn yeah. of events. So then we were able to, you know, we were like, you know, we got better and got better and we won the pole at Richmond and had a drop snout car and it was good for qualifying and, um, you know, so we had some good, you know, it, then it was that season turned around for us. Seemed like that was a turning point for us to go okay. Well, yeah. maybe this maybe this works for him. So, ninety three and ninety four, you run for Bill Davis. When and how did you first hear from Joe Gibbs and or his people? Yep. So you know, as the year as the year went on in ninety four, uh, we, of course we changed from Pontiac from Fords to Pontiacs. Got Rusty's old Pontiacs. Went <clears throat> that route, and then towards the I think Maxwell House was um, you know at some point in time there throughout they were like all right we're bowing out of the sport and so bill was talking you know trying to get um negotiation or trying to get sponsors right and left and so we get to uh you know towards the end of the year and again it's like well i'm not sure i guess i have to go back to driving bush car again <laughs> and because we're not you know i don't know where the sponsorship's going to land here if we're going to get it in time because it was you know delayed 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 and and you know in due time and understandably so and so i just had to you know, I wanted to stay there, but also had to look out for me on this part of it over here. So 
so long story short, we go to Phoenix and um, run the race. And so I'm sitting on the I'm sitting on a workbench after the race is over, and I'm just sitting there after you know whatever I I think I we didn't have a good day. So I'm sitting on the workbench, and I look in front of me, you know, twenty yards, thirty yards, something like that, forty yards, and I see Coach Gibbs. And I now I'd seen Coach Gibbs early in the year doing a I had for Pontiac I had been to Florida. Or uh, he spoke at a conference, and I was there for that. And I'm just there, you know. I'm I'm just hanging out. I'm yeah. just, you know. Does he even have a clue? Clue? I have, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not there because of him. I'm just there because of Pontiac made me go, and he was just happened to be the speaker because he's uh, GM, I think it was. So anyway, I'm sitting there, and he looks at me from across the way, you know, like yardage away. He goes, I need your number. You, you know, he, I could read his lips. I need your number. <laughs> and I go. Could you get a marker fast enough? <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I mean, I honestly, yeah. I thought, for surely he's talking to somebody behind me. Because I'm like, they just not wanting my number. Why do you want my number? So anyway, I want your number, you know. So about that time, Jimmy Makar walked up and said, hey, Joe wants your number. I'm like, okay. So I flew home. Gave him my number. So I flew home. I got, we took the radar home. Flew home, commercial. Get home, went to bed. He calls about noontime, says, like, hey, I didn't wake you up. I said, no, sir. I'm wide awake, man. I am so sleepy. <laughs> and yeah. um, so anyway, we, we um, um, you know, so that was kind of the conversation. Now, we kind of worked on this in the back story a little bit because DJ and I had worked on it. On the, he, he was trying to go to Yates. Okay. And... He was trying to leave them go to Yates, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. So throughout all this, it was crazy. So this is something you'd actually talk to DJ about? Oh, we talked every day. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we were talking yeah. every day on, we were talking every day on, can he get out? Can I get out? Can, I, can he get out? Can I get out of my contract? Can he get out of his contract? And I'm sitting there, you know, I, I don't know if I can. He don't know if he can, but he wants to drive the 88 car or 28 car. And, um, I mean, I had Robert call me a couple, once or twice and like, Hey, if I can't get DJ, you want to drive this car? You know, and I'm like, well, of course I would, but <laughs> yeah, I've got a contract and if Bill doesn't, you know, get a sponsor, you know, can I still get out? I mean, I, if he didn't have a sponsor, so I'm not trying to get out. So you were still under contract. Yeah. I'm not trying to get out right. just to okay. get out. I'm trying to figure out what to do in case he doesn't get a sponsor. So, but Robert's like, I remember I was in. Ohio buying a new trailer for my Grand National team and uh, at High Tech and he called and he said hey are, do you have a problem with with Mac tools I went nope I'm good with Mac tools you get this yep I'm good with that all right call you back you know and then he wouldn't call for three weeks and I, or not three weeks <laughs> for three four days and I'm panicking yeah, yeah and then you know so I mean it was like one of those things where it was orchestrated it seemed like it was orchestrated enough by DJ and I say okay if I can get out of here and drive drive the 28 you can drive maybe you can drive this car because DJ couldn't go until unless I had a replacement of course. Because they weren't going to just let him go, who they going to hire. So they had to have somebody in the wing. And I was like, I'd rather drive the 18 than the 28 because that's a lot of pressure on that one. And I wasn't ready. I mean, I'm my, I'm my year two. Wow. So, okay. yeah. so that was kind of in the works of it. So then when Coach, you know, con connected, I mean, we, we kind of, I think we were just wishfully thinking if it could go this way, they'd be great. So then it worked out where, of course, DJ won Charlotte, but yet he still got out of his contract. And I was able to get out of mine and go there. 
I'd hate to see a diagram on that deal. Oh, it was, <laughs> yeah. Hey, what'd you hear today? Well, I ain't heard nothing. Today. What'd you hear today? I ain't wow. I got nothing yet. <laughs> you score your first win at Charlotte in May of 1995. Yep. What was that like? That, after going through what you'd been through, you know, with the truck fire and everything that you'd been through with mm-hmm. your own bush deal, you're at the peak Yeah. at that moment. What was that like? Well, I'm about to go back a little bit on you. If that's okay. That's absolutely fine. So when, 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 I, when I go, and I don't know if this is in any of your questions, but when I go to drive for coach at the end of 94, we go test, right? So we go test in Texas at Texas World Speedway. So we go down there, and it rained for three days, but we got a few laps in. And, uh, I mean, I'm like, this is, like, totally exciting for me, this, this group. I mean, it's just... These guys are, they're on it. You know what I mean? I'm like, holy crap, I've never seen this before. This is awesome, you know? So the last day I'm there, at the test, I woke up that morning, I don't feel good. So I'm like, man, I, just don't, man, I feel awful. You know, I just, I don't know, just don't, just got no energy. So we, we finish our tests, or finish the rain, and <laughs> we go home. So that was early December. So by the time December, Christmas rolls around, I'm, I'm really not feeling good. So I remember going to my mom and, dad, my mom and dad's house for Christmas. And I don't think I ever got out of the car. I just stayed in there, you know, just did whatever. I left to go home. I can't sleep at night, and I had no energy throughout the day. So I think it was after the first of the year. Uh, well, it was the day after Christmas. I called my doctor. I said, hey, man, I just don't feel good. Da, 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 da. Kind of told him what I had, what I felt. So he went, you know, right away he said, you got Graves' disease. I was like, what? I was like, really? I was like, what in the world is that? That sounds worse than what it really is. He said, well, really, fortunately for you, the guy that came up with, or the guy that diagnosed, first of all, his last name was Graves. <laughs> so it's like, okay, good. <laughs> so, so I go down to, I go to the shop and I, so I go to the shop. I said, I got something I got to tell you. Sit down with coach. And I told him what I had. And it's like, he never batted an eye. He says, well, we'll get you in the Mayo Clinic. We'll get, you know, I mean, he just like, boom, boom, boom. He knows how to fix things. Right. Yeah. So I ended up, I went to the Mayo Clinic uh, once. Now, I didn't realize this, but when he, you know, back in Phoenix, I mean, I got pictures driving the Maxwell House car. I looked like, I looked like death warmed over. I was 149 pounds, but I just thought it was stress, you know, a kid, fix and lose your job. Um, how much stressful can it be, right? So you're, you know, your stress might lay on your heart, right? So in your mind. So anyway, so we go, I go to the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. And we, I go down there, and I end up, I went twice, and I know I took one radiation pill to get rid of my thyroid. So, you know, and prior to that, I go to the doctor at Baptist. You know, my doctor here sends me there, you know, and that guy goes, well, you're just going to have to, you won't be able to race for, you know, two or three months, and da-da-da-da. Oh, wow. So that's not the answer you want. So I'm like, all right, can you remove it through surgery? What, what's the, our, our option? So, so radioactive iodine was my fix for it. So they, they did that. At that point in time, they, they, they went in and um, I just took a pill in a sealed room. with. Oh, I know. Yeah. My wife had thyroid cancer. So, so yeah, yeah. did that. And I didn't have cancer. I yeah. just had hyperactive yeah. thyroid. Yeah. So anyway, I took the pill. So anyway, it's still like, you know, you're still going to be, you know, I mean, it was like, well, you can't overwork, overexert yourself. Now, did you have to be in isolation for a week or two after taking that pill? It was like no, it was like, um, you know, an hour in that room and then fly home. You can't be, don't be around your kid. Right. He's yeah. An infant. Yeah. yeah. Flush twice. Um, don't, you know, 
not isolation, but don't just be smart about, don't hug your kid and breathe all over him because you've got radiation in your system. So anyway, I, I ended up, uh, I think David Green tested for me at Daytona, which was a hilarious story on top of, on, on, its, on its own. But so he tested one of the two tests that we would go do. So anyway, but the doctor still told me, he's like, you know, you're, you really can't be, you're, you're, you can't be overexerting yourself. You get all worked up. You could still have, you know, like a heart attack or a stroke and da da yada. And I'm like, that's how this is going to happen, you know. But anyway. Yeah. So I remember buying a bi- bicycle. My wife and I bought bicycles and rode around the Spruce Creek for the week that we were there just to kind of get stamina because I was like yeah. zapped out. So anyway, so going back to your, your question, I know I'm going back a little bit. But um, so, but going back or going to the Coca-Cola 600 and winning that, we'd finished second at Rockingham, finished second at Atlanta. I think we finished second at Darling. I mean, we'd run good. Jeff Gordon was just crushing us, you know what I mean? We're just second, Rock. second, second. Yeah. So, so then to be able to go to, um, the Coke 600, I mean, again, just, I mean, we just, I just felt like we were, you know, we're inching up on it. We're getting better. You know, you're, we're getting faster. Um, now at this point in time, I will have to say that at the Coke 600, Daryl Waltrip walked up to me and he goes, what are you doing? Because every week I'd beat the seat out with a hammer because I was gaining weight right and left because now my thyroid's normal. Everything I eat. I was yeah. wearing instead of it burning <laughs> off like yeah, I was before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went from 150 to 180 pounds by the Coke 600. I gained 30 pounds. So every week I couldn't fit my seat. I beat the seat out. <laughs> he walked over every week. He said, you beat your seat out. And I was like, you don't, I'll, I'll tell you later. So anyway, uh, so, but yeah, that night, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, you know, again, we're like one of those things where it's like, we're getting closer, you know, we're, not a favorite, but everybody's, you know, we're fast and we're fast and we're fast. So we get to the Coke 600 and, um, I mean, it's just like, okay, we're running good. We're running really good. And I'm on the radio. I'm like, I'm, this is just like the easiest car to drive. I'm like, man, this, this thing's awesome. You know, I'm just, and I love the fact of, you know, 600 miles. I mean, I think that's awesome. And then we get to the, uh, Ian Schrader's leading and I'm like, man, I don't know if I can catch him or not. Not if I catch him. He goes in the one. Blows up. Blows up. I'm like, oh, boy, we got him. So went by him on the outside. I'm like, holy smoke, now we're leading. You know, now two seconds down, now we're eight seconds up. So anyway, and just like everybody says, you know, I heard everything. I think something's going to break all the time. I was like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. So uh, fortunate enough, and everything worked out. Terry finished second, and it was just like, and I don't remember him finished second, to be honest with you, at the, at the time until somebody told me later, and I'm like, really? Because cool. I was so excited. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but, I mean, it just... I mean, what a um, to come from again. Kind of like you ask about the winning the championship and the Bush Grand National Series, going, why are we doing this? And then end up doing it, and then to get from another point in time and that year and that second place finish, second place finish, and you know, getting to that point to um, you know to be able to um, to win for Coach and I mean, just for Jimmy, uh, everybody. I mean, it was just like, oh my gosh. I mean, I don't know that you could you couldn't have written that any better. It seemed like at that point in time and. I just, you know, it was such an amazing feeling because you're just, I mean, you're just so thankful for all that and can't believe that we're, can't believe we did it. 1996, you win in Atlanta and Terry clinches his championship. That must have been a cool moment. That was pretty cool. We had, um, you know, it was, uh, I think we were back, we were building our own engines that year. We are off the Hendrick deal because we did win three races in 95, so that pretty much, <laughs> yeah, Jeff yeah. Gordon took us off that deal. Um, <laughs> and I will pick on him on that one. But, um, yeah. so we were doing our own engines, and we were, you know, building that program up, and we hadn't won yet. 
So we go the, we go to Atlanta, and we're like on, we're on a winless streak, right, for the year because we haven't won. And we get to um, we get there, and I mean we've been getting better and better, and and so we get to the uh, get to Atlanta, and it's one of my favorite places. Of, you know, always run good there, and um, I have um, you know I mean qualified first, and I think Terry was third or fourth, maybe. Gordon second, Gordo second, right? So anyway, PR guy for Terry, you know, he comes up. I think it was Saturday. He's like, he wants to give me a hat, like a championship hat. I'm like, uh-uh. Terry, he's like, no. You, can you put this in the car? I'm like, no, <laughs> not gonna happen, right? <laughs> Maybe he did that Sunday, but it's yeah. like, no, this is not gonna happen. Oh no, no. just no. That's bad. I've I've seen this rodeo. Oh yeah, yeah. So anyway, the. Um, but the night before, Terry and I talked <clears throat> in our motorhomes because we parked side by side, and we were like, "Man, it'd be pretty cool if 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 I won and he won the championship." Well, like, of course that would. I mean, this is when you're sitting there thinking about what yeah. the best case scenario. That would be the best case scenario, right? So he asked me, he says, "Hey, if 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 I can, if you're leading, if I can lead some laps because they gave five points for a leading lap." I was like, "Yeah, sure, you know, no problem." So again, race morning, uh, everything's pretty kosher, just doing our normal deal. That might have been when the guys wanted me to give me the hat. I didn't want to think about it, you know, and I mean, there's fans everywhere. I mean, it's packed, and of course, it's the flop from it is what it is now. What a cool racetrack it was, and so we took off, and... Now, that was on the old, that was on the original. Yep, the original surface, original configuration. So, took off there, and um, Gordon had loose wheels right away, lug nuts were loose, something like that, so he fell back. So, I'm leading Terry second, and I mean, it's like... Of course, I saw it on TV later. It's pretty obvious, you know, like right. pull over, let your brother lead some laps, you know. And it's like, again, just like, yeah, man, that car I drove was like so fast. So I went back by him and, you know, we ran our race, but I was always in constant, you know, where's Terry at? Where's Terry at? So as as it wound down, um, he was able to win or he was able to win the championship and we won the race. And they're like, I mean, so afterwards on the victory lap, you know, cool down lap, um, we kind of rode side by side, and at the time, I was like, I kind of went like, hey, you won some coin today, didn't you? <laughs> you know? And he's like, yeah. yeah. I'm like, yeah, you won some coin. <laughs> and uh, and it was like, well, that was a great picture. I'm like, that really wasn't set up to do that. It was just, that was just, it just happened that way, you know, just yeah. because we were that close enough on the racetrack and all that. So anyway, um, and then we go to Victory Lane, and, uh, you know, I think some of the greatest memories for me is the fact that, you know, we got Rick Hendrick, uh Terry, Coach Gibbs, myself, my mom and dad are in there. And, you know, I just, I see a picture of that quite often. That's the six of us. And uh, anyway, that's just, you think about, I think about my parents going, okay, I've got both my kids. They're both racing in this top level. And they're rolling to victory lane the same day, which is hard to do. Kurt and Kyle could do that. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, you know, if you're in second, if you finish second, you don't go to victory lane unless you congratulate somebody. But we got, we both got trophies. So we're both holding trophies. We're yeah. both, you know, and, and so that's, I mean, to me, that was, you know, a total, um, you know, totally just, you know, hard to believe that, that that happened that way at that point in time. And we actually were talking about, like, wouldn't that be cool if it did happen? And then the funny story was to get back to the motorhome that, that night after it's all done, done with, we get back to the motorhome. My dad's in there and he goes, Cowboys won too. I'm glad it's complete. We're good now, you know. (laughs) Hey, listeners, this is Eric Quinn, general manager of QWare. 
We are so proud to partner with Rick and Steve and the Seat Vault Podcast in order to bring you these great shows that you're hearing every single week. For over 30 years, the scene was the only place you needed to go to find the NASCAR content and news that you needed and wanted. The most talented writers, the greatest photographers, and all of sports made the scene the ultimate source for NASCAR information. At QWare, we've taken that same philosophy and applied it to our online maintenance management system. One source, one solution that provides you with all of the information you need to get the job done. At QWare, we know that every building, every campus, every factory, school, shop, museum, healthcare facility, every office, every building, it it all needs to be maintained. If the information your facilities team needs to keep your building up and running isn't at their fingertips, then you're probably losing time and money. QWare allows your maintenance team to access the important information from anywhere in the world with just a push of a button. As proud as we are to help bring you the Scene Vault podcast, we at QWare are just as proud to provide the most simple to use, inexpensive cloud maintenance solution on the market today. We would be honored to have you look at QWare and see what we can do for your workplace. Now enjoy the rest of this week's podcast, and when you get a minute, check us out at qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. That's qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. QWare is a product of the CNS companies. QWare. Maintain excellence. Steve, in the 1992 Bush Series season opener at Daytona, Joe Nemechek winds up wrecking and his car explodes into a ball of fire. And there's actually a pretty good photo sequence of that in my book, Second to None. And then there's also a photo of the aftermath of that where Bobby and Ty Bodine are helping to pull Joe out of that car. Hmm. And to hear Bobby Labonte talk about pulling Joe out of that car and then Joe's kind of sitting on the windowsill of the car. Steve, he said that you could almost hear Joe's flesh kind of searing. And Oh, man, I don't know. Oh, that was something else. Three things that no driver should ever experience. Number one, a very sudden violent stop. True. That's the kind of thing that hurts a driver. Right. Also, getting T-boned in the driver's side door. That's not good. And finally, fire. Yeah. I just cannot imagine the greatest being in the fear of like that. among those yeah. is fire. Yeah. Fire is probably the single most universal fear, what if you want to call it fear, that drivers have. No, I think you can call it fear. Absolutely. And I don't get me started on Justin Bonnet's deal at Five Flags Speedway and his car catching yeah, on fire. About that. And the video where that captures the fan reaction and the people kind of around that accident, everybody else is grabbing their cell phones to right. start recording that rather than going to help. Well, now, for most uh, of my career, no. early career, and up, uh-uh. for a large portion of my career, one, one of the things about it, fire and the fear of fire was of course the potential to do major injury but the other thing i think that helped in this fear is those drivers didn't know how long it was going to take for help to come to them yeah much different than today but back in the day it was not good steve what is so ironic about that the season started at daytona with joe's car on fire and ty bodine and bobby labani helping to pull him out of that and the championship that year right comes down to joe nemechek 
Bobby Labonte and Todd Bodine. How about that? <laughs> and Todd, he was within striking distance, but something was going to have to happen to Joe and to Bobby for mm-hmm. him to be able to come back from the deficit that he was at. But they go to Hickory for the season finale. Now, if there's any place ever right, where a go. championship <laughs> should be decided, <laughs> it's a place like Hickory Motor Speedway because you know that that's going to be a battle royale. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming off the top ropes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much what happened that year because evidently I don't know what was going on with Jimmy Spencer, but he wound up getting into Joe just every time he got a shot. And yeah, seven or eight times. I don't know, but All Joe right, doesn't take Jimmy Spencer to anything get into him to make him a, that kind. Jimmy's just Jimmy. But Joe wound up finishing, I believe, sixth place, and it was exactly where he needed to finish in order to beat Bobby. Steve, three points. That's amazing. Three. And you go back and you think about the overall course of the year. That's one position mm-hmm. in any given race, right? If Bobby had been able to make whatever pass at whatever racetrack, things might have been different. Well, the ironic thing, as I've already alluded to, is the championship came down to these two drivers who were the very two drivers, very much in part of that accident at Daytona. And kind of wonder, I may say this, what would have happened if Bobby and Todd hadn't been there? Yeah. You know, this whole thing could have changed. But, Steve, 1992 – in the Winston Cup division. Same way. One of the greatest championship battles of all time that came down to the season finale in Atlanta. Yeah. So 1992. 1992 was a beautiful season for championship. Very, very competitive season. And I would like to point out that both of those championship battles were determined over the course of a full season. Okay, okay. <laughs> you're right. You're right, though. After last episode with Dennis Punch, I don't know that we need to be talking about championship <laughs> formats where I reintroduced my just revolutionary idea for a championship format. Okay, stop right there. We've heard it. Okay. <laughs> Evidently, you think as much of my idea as Dennis does. <laughs> But 1992, also, it became pretty well known that Jeff Gordon was going to leave Bill Davis to go cup racing with Rick Hendrick pretty early that year. I want to say it was probably around May or so. And Bobby winds up getting that ride. And December 1st, Steve, there are no cars in the shop. Incredible. And Bobby winds up spending 28 of the 31 days in December trying to get that team in shape to go to Daytona, much less trying to run the full season. No cars in the shop, and he spends 28 out of 31 days yeah. getting ready. But yeah, that, that's monumental. I don't, I don't really understand how all that came about. Well, Steve, obviously it was going to be a struggle. When you yeah. come together that late, it's going to be kind of tough getting up to speed. Always is. Yeah, they go to Charlotte for the Winston Open, and Bobby's sure that he's about to lose his ride because things just weren't clicking, and he crashed out of four of the season's first 10 races. And that's something that Bobby Labonte just doesn't do. But just look at it. No wonder he figured he was out of the ride. Look at what happened. Things weren't going well on the racetrack. He actually qualified 10th for the Open. That was a lot better than what he remembered, but he finished 14th. And he is at his wit's end trying to figure out what's going on. He actually goes across the street to the Hagen Racing Shop. Right. 
and Pete Wright lets him in the back door and he proceeds. He doesn't steal anything evidently <laughs> this time, but he proceeds to start measuring some of the chassis, some of the different geometries that they right. were doing. Went back to the Bill Davis shop and kind of tried to incorporate some of that into his car for Charlotte. And voila, just like that, he goes to the 600, qualifies 13th. He finishes 8th. That was the first time he'd finished on the lead lap all year. And he actually led a couple of laps, three or four laps, and those were the first laps you know, that he had led yeah, all this, year. Th- this whole scenario doesn't really speak well for Bill Davis racing. I mean, they're not ready at the start of the year. Uh, Bobby has to go to his brother's shop and basically lift all the necessary figures he needs yeah, to try yeah. to rearrange the cars and everything of that nature. But I should point out that Bill Davis last quite long as a team owner yeah, he did. in Cup Series racing, all the way, I think, 2007, I believe, was the last year he was on it. He had several drivers. Most prominent among them, I think, was Ward Burton, who won the Daytona 500 for Bill Davis. Bill Davis racing didn't compete for the entire schedule during several of those subsequent years. Did several times, but several years did not. And by the time 2007 ro- rolled around, things were over. But, uh, you know, if, if, if Bobby started this way, it has to give you the thinking that that team simply isn't going to last. I don't know Bill very well, but I have to wonder when Jeff announced that he was going to go Winston Cup racing with Rick Hendrick, I can't help but wonder if Bill didn't say, oh, yeah, you're going to go cup racing? Well, I'm going to show you. And then, you well, know, maybe not be. being as prepared as he might have yeah, been that otherwise. That might have been. I can see your theory. I think there is some truth in it, especially when I did talk to Bill Davis about Jeff's departure, and I was in their truck. And Bill said to me, well, I don't want to keep nobody who doesn't want to be with me. Yeah. And he was yeah. not happy about it. Bobby is kind of catching his breath after the Phoenix race late the next year, and he looks off into the garage, and he sees Joe Gibbs, and Joe Gibbs is trying to get his attention, and Joe's telling him, I want your number. Give me your number. (laughs) And Bobby, evidently, from what he said, he kind of looked around, and is Joe talking to me? It turned out that Joe was looking for another driver. Dell Jarrett was talking about going to Robert Yates after Ernie Irvin got hurt so badly at Michigan, and Bobby is wanting to go to Joe Gibbs, so they're kind of helping each other out. Again, one of those deals that never happened, a very good possibility for Bobby was Robert Yates. <laughs> Robert had actually talked to Bobby. Oh, so think, how well, about I, that? I think Robert Yates and uh, Joe Gibbs – both saw a lot of potential in Bobby Labonte. They weren't buying his results as yeah. his true skills. Yeah. They're seeing great potential. Well, this is how the garage has evolved. Bobby actually preferred to go to Joe Gibbs because he didn't feel ready for huh. a top flight ride right. like Robert Yates. Because at that time, Robert Yates I is... Feel. He's one of the two or three best teams in that garage, and Joe Gibbs had had some success with DJ, had won the Daytona 500, but they weren't considered the elite of the elite yet. Right. Bobby lands the ride with Joe Gibbs Racing, but during the offseason, he's feeling really, really bad, really bad. He talked about going to his mom and dad's house for Christmas and couldn't even get out of the car hardly. 
He was feeling so bad. And he is actually diagnosed with Graves' disease. Terrible name. (laughs) Which is an autoimmune disease that impacts the thyroid gland. Bobby's reaction was the same as yours. Graves' disease? What? (laughs) (laughs) And the doctor had to explain that the doctor who discovered this or who diagnosed it. Was named Graves, I hope. Yeah, was named Graves. So, But Bobby had dropped to 149 pounds. Mm. And he said when he was at the end of the 1994 season, he saw some pictures of himself, and he was looking kind of haggard then, 149 pounds. Mm. He kind of chalked it up to the stress of having a new kid. He was about to lose his job and so on and so forth. So he said that he went to Joe Gibbs, and Joe didn't even blink. He said, we'll get you in the Mayo Clinic. We'll get you taken care of. And everything turned out fine. And that decision paid off. Because at Charlotte for the World 600, Bobby Labonte won his very first Winston Cup race. Potential realized. I think Joe Gibbs probably expected something like that out of Bobby. So after going through all that, he wins his first Winston Cup race. He makes it to the mountaintop. After going through that kind of health scare, (laughs) he actually had to take a radioactive iodine pill. Good Lord. My wife had to do the same kind of thing. She had thyroid cancer and everything, and they actually gave her this pill in a hazmat suit. You're kidding me. No, they were in a hazmat suit, and I guess the dosage that she was taking, Bobby said that he didn't have to be in isolation or anything, but the first time that she had to do it, she was in isolation for two weeks. A radioactive pill? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then the second time that she had it, she was able to stay at home. The boys had to go stay with their grandparents, but she was able to stay at home, and I had to sleep in another bedroom. But but she was radioactive. I couldn't be around her. But at one point... (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but I... (laughs) But at one point, I actually went by the door of the bedroom where she was, and I threw her a pack of microwave popcorn. I said, here, hold this. Tell me when it's done. (laughs) You did Yes, I did. And we're still married, believe it or not. (laughs) That was in 1995, and then Bobby wins the 1996 season finale in Atlanta while Terry clinches the championship. So that was a big day for the Labonte family. And (laughs) Saturday, Terry's PR rep comes up to Bobby and wants to give him a championship cap to wear after Terry wins it all. And he was going to carry it in his car and everything. And Bobby said, no, no, that is bad, bad, bad Bad. mojo. (laughs) No, no. And to quote Toby Ziegler from the West Wing, you don't want to tempt the wrath of the whatever from high atop the thing. (laughs) (laughs) So that is my West Wing reference for this episode. Now, Steve, what other kinds of bad mojo are there in the sport? And I'm not talking about necessarily the peanuts or the $50 bills or the color green or anything like that, but the unwritten rules of the game, like they talk about baseball. Well, most of mine are taken from the media angle. For example, you never want to go to a driver after practice and say, you're looking good. You'll, right away, you'll get, you'll get a stare. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. They do not like the image of being ahead of everybody else. Now, you can print that, but they're not going to tell you that. That's one thing you learn. One that I had 
at Talladega one year, went around the garage on race morning, just like you always do. And I talked to several of the drivers and I've wished them all good luck. Yeah. Good luck. That's fine. Today. No, it's not. Well, it was with the ones I had good luck to. <laughs> That day, about lap 10, there was a 29 car oh. wreck. <laughs> okay. And Steve, every single person that I talked to and wished good luck that morning was involved in that wreck. So thereafter, I would not wish a driver good luck for a race. Now, I would say go get them or, you know, whatever, but I would not say good luck That's sort of along the lines of what I was trying to explain. Yeah. You you can go to a driver and say, you're looking good. I think you got this one, and you're not going to get anything but a look. They don't want that. Now, they might feel that and tell the team that, but they're not going to tell you. Well, I put together a photo of all the Living Bush Series championships at Charlotte in the year 2000. That was in May, so it was kind of early in the season, but Todd Bodine and Jeff Green had kind of separated themselves from the rest of the field. I think both of them were like 250 points ahead of third place, and I went to both of them and asked them if they could possibly be in this photo as the potential 2000 Bush Series champion. Correct. Neither one of them agreed to do that because that was really yeah. a no-no, and I absolutely fully understood. Right. Never tell the drivers or ask them to do anything that indicates they are best, that they are so much further ahead of the others, because you're not going to get any cooperation. Steve, I was looking on one of the NASCAR Facebook groups that I frequent, and somebody actually posted about all the vintage apparel that Dell Jr. tends to wear. And they were asking, where does he get this kind of stuff? Because he wears some stuff that I'd love to have and get sure. my hands on. So where can you get vintage racing memorabilia? And Scooter Allison, one of our faithful listeners, was the very first person to comment and said, the Scene Vault podcast has an advertiser in Brian Kelb, and here's the link to his stuff. And if you want whatever you want, he can probably get you hooked up. Now, that is advertising dollars at work, buddy. <laughs> Brian, I think we're going to raise our rates. <laughs> Honestly, Brian does a good job at what he does. Well, absolutely. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I have seen stuff on his site I either forgot about or never knew existed. So follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Again, that is at Speedway Screens and the website is SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Steve, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of looking forward to next season to where we can dig into the issues of the week again, <laughs> because some of these questions are pretty tough. You know, it kind of requires us to do a little digging, and that was certainly the case with Barry Avery's question on Facebook, and he asked, I have always wondered if there was a behind-the-scenes story of Gary Nelson trying to run the number 28 Robert Yates racing car on the chassis dyno at Talladega. <laughs> And blowing up the motor. <laughs> Robert Yates was pissed off and made no attempt to hide it. <laughs> now, Gary Nelson at the time was the Winston Cup director. Is that correct? Yes, he okay. was the Winston Cup director. Now, I can already smell rat, but go ahead. 
<laughs> Evidently, what had happened, Robert Yates had some horsepower at Daytona Talladega, and some other teams were complaining and wanting to see what kind of numbers they were running. And that week in April of 1996 at Talladega, Ernie Irvin and Dale Jarrett swept the front row. And after qualifying, NASCAR decided that they were going to put a number of different cars on the chassis dyno to see what kind of horsepower they were putting out. And that would have been all well and good. (laughs) Yes. But then Gary Nelson gets behind the wheel, and he evidently smokes the clutch, and he doesn't just tweak the engine. (laughs) It evidently blew to kingdom (laughs) come. (laughs) That's nothing against Gary Nelson. He was a very experienced crew chief, a very innovative crew chief. But evidently, he wasn't that great at operating a chassis dyno. <laughs> well, there is that theory, but of course, you know there is another. <laughs> Gary, in the May 2nd, 1996 issue of Winston Cup Seed, said, I hope it did no damage to the engine. I know the clutch is going to have to be replaced. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I hope it did no I know the clutch is going to... Come on. Uh, well, now, uh, Gary, <laughs> look, I don't know exactly what happened, but let's put some facts together. Everybody is suspicious of Robert Yates' engines. They're doing chassis dynos at the track. Gary Nelson not only is suspicious of the engine, I think he knows something is up in his own mind. No. Do you? Re- so I think he knows something's up. You don't think he did it on purpose, do you? Well, let's put it this way. Yes. (laughs) Really? Now, I know I'm sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but Gary Nelson was one of the shrewdest crew chiefs out there. And I have an idea that he knew exactly what was going on. Now, the easiest way to solve this problem was to make a mistake, quote-unquote, on the chassis dyno and make the engine useless. Now, what does it matter to him what kind of horsepower, what they're doing? How is that horsepower made? That's the question. If Gary Nelson thinks or had proof or had reason to believe, whatever you want to call it, there was something in the engine construction that was giving the team the edge, the best way to stop it is to get rid of it. Now, why do you think he would do that? Well, if it's found to be illegal, they're going to get rid of it anyway. Well, so point, why they need to blow it up? My point is he's going to make Robert Yates work to get in that race. Ooh. You're thinking there's some punishment in there. Well, I'm saying that I would not put it past Gary Nelson really? to install that type <laughs> of punishment. Now, I'm not picking on Gary or anything. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. seen it over the years. Bill Gasway who was a NASCAR Winston Cup director for several years, was famous for making life difficult on teams yeah. that he thought yeah. or knew were cheating. He'd do it his own way, and he made them work, made them suffer. Now, in this particular instance, if he takes a chapter from Gasaway's book, that's exactly what he's doing to Robert Yates. Well, Robert Yates definitely suffered because he said, oh, yeah. he said it's junk. The pistons are like a crater on the moon, (laughs) like BBs got in the cylinder walls and bounced around. 
it needs new rods, pistons, crank, all the valves, everything but the cylinder head casting and the block and the intake manifold. So there you go, Robert. Yeah, that engine got dumped. (laughs) (laughs) And NASCAR did offer to fly the engine back to the team shop in Charlotte to be rebuilt the night before the race. And Robert thought about doing that because he had the backup engine, tried that, didn't really do what he wanted it to. And then a third engine and tried that out. And then that didn't work either. So in Ernie's car, they basically built a fourth engine out of parts from the backup engine and the third engine. Right. So Robert Yates racing, they had a lot of work to do that weekend to come back from this mistake uh, quote yeah. unquote. <laughs> well, there may be something inside of Gary Nelson that was saying, take that, Robert. <laughs> Ooh, you heard it here first on the Scene Vault podcast. Yes, I'm sir. Just saying it's possible. Yeah. Ernie did wind up struggling during that race and then wound up in a multi car crash that left him 31st at the end of the day. So if it was on purpose, I would say mission accomplished, Mr. Gary Nelson. <laughs> I don't want to say it was the icing on the cake, but for whatever reason, they were running this chassis dyno and trying to get the computer data, and evidently nobody hit record or dumped the data, so they didn't even get the data that they were looking for. Mm. Computer well, error? Do you or think Gary Nelson? Thickens- oh. <laughs> oh. I mean, well, so far, it's laid out in front of you. Rick, I know there's no conclusive answer, but if I was... A good attorney, I would take that particular evidence and go to town. <laughs> Dale Jarrett had won the Daytona 500 that year, so his car and engine went to Daytona USA, and then Ernie's engine gets blown, so that's two pretty hefty price tags at Daytona and Talladega. True. Our next question is Zachary Rabacal, who is one of our Patreon supporters, and he asked, what led to NASCAR leaving short tracks such as Myrtle Beach, South Boston, Hickory, and many others around the turn of the millennium? One word, facilities. One word, facilities. That's it. Absolutely. And I will say this. First things first, I loved racing those places. Oh, yeah. A lot of people did. Because you talk about old school racing, that's what you got at Myrtle Beach, South Boston, Hickory and some of those tracks. And because I loved it, you kind of learned to overlook some of their shortcomings and you maybe loved it because of, of some of those shortcomings, but only to a point. That's right. And you and I were talking before we started recording, this was an issue that went back several years in the Winston Cup division right. where some of the facilities weren't what they became in later years. What they had to become to yeah. survive yeah. in later years. I remember getting a handwritten finishing order. At the end of a race. Absolutely. Back in those days, we're talking about the media here. Now, yeah. first, let's realize none of these tracks, and I'm talking cup racing right now, except for Daytona, even had a media center. A press guy had to go to the garage and down the pits and get his stories, and in some cases, get in his car, drive all the way around the track, if it was a super speedway, go up to the press box and work there. Is that a short track, like a Bristol or North Wilkesboro or Martinsville, once you got your material and you wanted to go back to the press box to write, you had to wait until mm-hmm. practice was over because there was no tunnel. 
and that was exactly the situation at each of these racetracks. Right. None Same of those thing. tracks. I've been to all three of them. Yeah, yes, none yes. of those tracks had any kind, any kind of infield media center. There was a infield media center at IRP, so that was good. So we could get some work done right. during practice and everything. But that was the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, and eventually all the cup tracks did have media centers. Now, some of them. Uh, quote, unquote, media yeah. <laughs> No bigger than a two-car garage. North you know. Wilkesboro had a media closet. <laughs> <laughs> and so did Darlington to start with. And th that's the way it, it slowly evolved in cup racing. And NASCAR was always trying to grow the Bush Series. And in order to do that, it found itself having to stop going to venues for not only media consideration, yeah. but fan consideration. You know, finding and, the amenities that fans have come to expect from the other tracks. And let's face it, seating capacity. You talk about fan amenities and that kind of thing. You also had the competitors to think about. One of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in my career. South Boston and Hickory, they had no pit wall. Uh, separating pit road from the pits, the crew members. Hickory one year... Kevin Grubb gets in a wreck, and he drives into the pits, Steve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he runs into the pit box and everything, knocks Todd Wilkerson off the pit box, winds up breaking his arm. And so that was the last race ever at Hickory. And I'm telling you, that could have been really, yeah, really absolutely bad. Absolutely bad. And, and several other short tracks had that similar pit design. Lack of pit safety, shall we say. Myrtle Beach, the press box. <laughs> I literally took Dramamine before the race <laughs> because it swayed. And it swayed bad enough to where I honestly thought that it might be a safety kind of thing because it was pretty bad. Yeah. Also, one year we were at Myrtle Beach, there had been a thunderstorm, and evidently lightning had knocked out the scoreboard. So the entire race, we didn't have a scoreboard. And so we scored that race in the press box ourselves. So really? Five, one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. And then right. we go five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty. Yeah. You know, so we're on lap well, two ninety seven. I yeah. remember going to tracks where there's no electronic scoreboard. Yeah. It was yeah. manually changed every five laps. You know, it was kind of antiquated. And again, I loved it because it was the very definition of old school racing. But at the same time, the Bush series was becoming a more quote unquote professional division. Absolutely. And you can't be having things like cars going into the pits. Exactly. And you, you, you just have, can't have that. You got to have the kind of amenities that a major league sport uh, like NASCAR has had come to expect and demand. That's why we saw so many speedways on the cup circuit, starting to add seats, improve the pitch, yeah. have media centers, uh, take out guardrails and make walls out of them, and everything of that nature. These tracks, like in Hickory and Myrtle Beach and South Boston, just, I don't think they had the finances to keep up. Yeah. And yeah. so they sort of fell off the schedule, and there were a couple of tracks that fell off the cup schedule. And I know that somebody's going to hear us say that and talk about the lack of media facilities and think, oh, the media is a bunch of cushy jobs and they're whiny and, and all that kind of thing. The fact of the matter is we have a job to do at the racetrack. Right. 
And today, when fans who live far away from where the race is being held, they depend on the media to keep them up to date. Any major league sport will tell you that the media, television, radio, print, cyberspace is the lifeblood of their sport. And therefore, they have to make it as easy as possible for them to get the word out because so many people are looking for that information from that facility. Another question that we got was from Matt Coleman, and he asked, why did Andy Santer not last longer in the Bush Series? He won a race after breaking his leg, but still lost his rod. Balls in your court, Rick. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. There has never been a nicer driver ever step foot in a NASCAR garage than Andy Santer. He was one of the nicest individuals that I've ever met, period. Regardless of whether or not he's in racing, he's just a genuinely nice guy. Now, also, I don't know that there has ever been a more beautiful driver's wife ever step foot in a garage than Andy's wife, Sue. I have to tell a story about Todd Bodon. Okay, I think I know this story. <laughs> we were at Watkins Glen, and my wife and I were expecting we were expecting the boys to come along and we hadn't told a lot of people because it's just something that you keep under wraps. But when we finally announced it and everything, and it, there was actually, I think a notice in the newspaper, Sue actually saw the announcement in the newspaper and she came up to me in the garage and she said, is this true? Is this, are y'all expecting? I said, yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, we've been trying for a while. And she just broke out into this just huge grin, and she hugged me. And, Steve, she hugged the stuffing out of me. (laughs) (laughs) That took a lot of work. You know, so that was pretty cool. Now, Todd Bodine was standing nearby, and he saw Sue hug me. And when Sue walked off, I, you know, was going to go on about my business, and Todd got my attention. He said, I don't know what you told her, but I'd tell her again. (laughs) (laughs) So that being said, Andy Santer and Sue Santer, they were truly good people. And Andy had actually kind of had to overcome a lot physically because he had had a really bad case of, I guess you pronounce it, Guillain-Barre syndrome when he was younger. So he'd had to overcome that. I believe Ken Schrader also dealt with that. But Andy wound up breaking his leg in a big crash on the backstretch at Daytona in the 1999 season opener. He came back about halfway through the season, D and Q'd for his first couple of races back. But then, Steve, he won at Pikes Peak. How about that? He won at Pikes Peak after being out of the car for so long and D and Q'd fell into qualify for races. At Michigan, they put Ricky Craven in the car, but Ricky missed the race there. And then finally, Andy was back in the car at Bristol, but then he failed to qualify at Darlington. Now, Steve, I have to ask you this question. How many drivers have you ever fired? Well, no driver whose beautiful wife gave me a big hug ever got fired. (laughs) (laughs) Tell you that. Andy failed to qualify at Darlington in the fall of that year. And I caught up to George Debadar, who is the innovative motorsports team owner in the garage after qualifying, after Andy had missed the race. And he proceeded to tell me that he was going to have to let Andy go. You know, he hated to do it. Andy was a great guy, but he had to let him go. And so (laughs) I called Andy at home to get his reaction. 
And Sue picked up the phone and she said, Hey Rick, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm just calling to see if I could get a reaction about what's going on and everything. And she goes, what's going on? Um, well, uh, <laughs> uh, I talked to George and well, what he, well, what are you talking about? They did not know that he was going to be released. And I was the dipstick in the middle of it that informed them of I what know was exactly happening. How you felt. I know how you felt. And I was like, if it's two people in that garage that you didn't want to disappoint, it was Andy and Sue. Why did Andy not last any longer? I got to be honest with you. I don't know that Andy was ever truly comfortable at the super speedways, but after his Daytona crash, I got to imagine that he just wasn't feeling real comfortable. Yeah, I imagine. You know, the great Bush Series driver, Butch Lindley, yeah. faced the same rap. Yeah. A lot of people said he was not good on the super speedways, he was uncomfortable, and Butch denied it and denied it and denied it, but I think it kept him from getting a decent cup ride. So Andy, Sue, if y'all hear this episode and you're still mad at me for, you know, breaking the bat, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sue, he could use a hug. <laughs> Hello, I'm Buddy Parrott, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, you might want to sit down for this iTunes review that we got, okay? I'm sitting. It came from a Lifetime NASCAR fan, and it says... I recently discovered the Scene Vault podcast, and I've really enjoyed every episode that I have heard. I'm a longtime NASCAR fan. I'm old enough that Fireball Roberts was my first favorite driver. I'm even old enough that I used to read Steve Wade's articles first in the Martinsville Bulletin <laughs> and later in the Roanoke Times. <laughs> Holy cow, oh, man. That old. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Were those printed on stone tablets? <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> I grew up close enough to Martinsville that we could hear the cars on the track at our house sometimes. I love the interviews with the NASCAR personalities from back in the day. I've gone back to the first podcast, and I'm now listening to all the old ones. It brings back memories of days when I'd read every written word I could find on the sport in a day when quality media coverage was lacking, to say the least. The scene was always a reliable source of news and information when there was no TV coverage. Thanks to Rick and Steve for making sure the history will live on. The interviews with folks like David Pearson and Bud Moore are priceless archives. We're losing the sports pioneers, so every chance to document their stories is important. I'd love to hear more of those interviews while those guys are still with us. I'd really love to hear stories from some of the independents, such as Buddy Arrington, Ronnie Thomas, James Hilton, etc. Newer fans need to understand the role they played in growing this sport. Keep up the great work. Wow. I tell you, that's humbling. That humbling. is, yeah, that's very humbling. And he mentioned the drivers like James Hilton and Buddy Arrington, and we've talked about them. Talked about them, Yeah, sure. we've talked about them several times. So that is a cool review. And again, listeners, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and a written review. Yeah, it's nice to hear people say nice things about you, but it also helps with placement. And, you know, when new listeners 
pick up a podcast, you know, sometimes those reviews determine whether or not people listen to them. So please help us out with a five-star review and a written review. And when we get to 100, I haven't forgotten this, (laughs) when we get to 100 five-star ratings and written reviews, we will give away a copy of every NASCAR book I've ever written and every NASCAR book that you have ever written. So very good. That's a very good prize. So please do that. And thank you so much for all your support this year. We have one more episode before the end of the year. Again, we're going to take a break and not post episodes on Christmas day or new year's day, but we will be back on January 8th with a kind of a retrospective right. of everything that right. we've done this Rick, year. Rick, we've been doing this while. How many episodes? Now? <laughs> would you believe that huh. last week was number 70, so 70. therefore this would be number 71? How about that? The first episode of 2020 will be episode number 73. Now, what is significant about number 73? That was my high school football number it was the cleanest jersey (laughs) it was the cleanest jersey in the history of dupont high school (laughs) 